1: Hi, hello, welcome, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm Liv, your host and fellow nerd. Well, we're back to it this week, friends. We're back to Argos, or Mycenae, whichever you want to call it, because they are basically interchangeable. We're back there to find out just what happens after you've plotted with your lover to kill your husband, as well as the concubine he brought home from war. Spoilers, though, it's not good. I'll go deeper into my sources for this episode at the end, but let me just say now, I would highly, highly recommend you read Euripides' Electra in full, because, well, you'll see. This is episode 45, Electra and Orestes, the angriest, best-named children of Greek mythology. The Oresteia, Part 2 Clytemnestra, with the help of her lover Aegisthus, has just killed her husband Agamemnon, as well as Cassandra, the woman he brought home from Troy to be his slave. But how did we get here? There's a curse on the house of Atreus. As I mentioned last week, you can hear a detailed telling of this curse in episode 27, but let's run down real quick just how many awful things this family has done and had done to them. The House of Atreus begins with Tantalus. Tantalus, you'll recall, wanted to test the so-called omniscience of the gods, and so he invited them to dinner and, unbeknownst to them, served them his own son. Most of the gods realized the trick before they'd taken a bite, except for poor Demeter, who was distracted. She missed Persephone, who was down with Hades in the underworld, and so she had a bite. The gods restored Tantalus' son, Pelops, to life, but he was left missing a chunk of his shoulder, which they replaced with ivory. Of course, they also cursed the family of Tantalus for what he'd done. Later in life, Pelops wanted to marry a woman, Hippodamia, so badly that he arranged for her father to be killed in a chariot race. I'm not saying the name of her father because I had enough trouble pronouncing it in the aforementioned episode. Just so many vowels, you guys. Pelops tricked a man named Myrtilus into arranging this before then throwing Myrtilus to his death. As Myrtilus fell, he too cursed the family of Pelops. Pelops and Hippodamia's sons are Atreus and Thyestes. And here's where things get real dramatic the oracle, that damn oracle, says that one of Pelops' sons will be king. And so the competition begins. Again, go back to episode 27 for details, but essentially, there are children being killed and served to their fathers as food, and there's Thyestes, who, also at the behest of the oracle, rapes his daughter, who gives birth to a son named Aegisthus. Meanwhile, Atreus too has two sons, Agamemnon and Menelaus. Aegisthus kills Atreus, and not his own rapey father, which is a huge mistake, and he and Thaestes exile Agamemnon and Menelaus, and they rule over Mycenae for a while. Eventually, Menelaus becomes king of Sparta after his marriage to Helen, and uses that power to get rid of Aegisthus and Thaestes and install Agamemnon as king of Mycenae. As king, he and his wife Clytemnestra, sister of Helen, have three children, Iphigenia, Orestes, and Electra. But a curse is a curse and this family has its share of curses against it agamemnon's final act of fucking up his own life and his family comes as he prepares to lead the greeks to troy to wage war in the name of helen agamemnon's sister-in-law the greeks convene at alice and this is where they plan their war and where they prepare to leave in their ships all together but just as they want to leave the wind disappears For days, there is no wind to bring them to their much-sought-after war. Agamemnon learns how he's expected to fix this. He must be willing to sacrifice his daughter, Iphigenia. And he does, happily. Clytemnestra, though, doesn't appreciate the urgency Agamemnon feels, and she doesn't forgive him for what he's done. And while he's away, not only does she find solace in a new lover, her husband's greatest enemy, Aegisthus, but they plot how exactly they'll both take revenge on this man who's taken so much from them. And so upon Agamemnon's return after 10 years of waging war in Troy, Clytemnestra with the help of her lover, Aegisthus, kills her husband as well as Cassandra the woman he brought back from Troy to be his slave. After, when it's over, Clytemnestra relishes in what she's done, how she tempts him with a hot, cleansing bath after so many years away from such homely comforts, how she comforts him by preparing such a luxury, how she showers him in affection, how she's missed him. Clytemnestra relishes in how Agamemnon, finishing his bath... Stands up, dripping wet. How she takes red tapestries and wraps him tightly in the fabric. How she stabs him again and again as he screams in agony. How the blood pours, soaking the fabric. How it spurts and covers her in the hot, sticky liquid. And with that, it's done. Iphigenia is avenged and a weight is lifted from Clytemnestra. The curse, though, the curse on the house of Atreus, only grows. Clytemnestra and Aegisthus have killed the king, Agamemnon. They don't try to hide it, either. After the deaths, a battle ensues between Agamemnon's guards and the many supporters Aegisthus has cultivated over his years in Argos. But the battle is over quickly, and Aegisthus is the victor. The people of Argos learn what's been done, but the pair hold all the cards. Clytemnestra is still queen, and now Aegisthus is king. He is, after all, of the house of Atreus. And he's already been king once. He's simply taking back the mantle. Now, this whole time, there's only been one child of Clytemnestra and Agamemnon living in the palace where the murder took place, Electra. Orestes, the only son of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, and so the rightful heir to the throne of Argos, has been sent away. In some versions, he's sent away by Clytemnestra in an effort to save him from her new lover, Aegisthus. In others, Clytemnestra is powerless, or rather, is so consumed in her anger with Agamemnon that she doesn't even consider what might happen to Orestes once his father has been killed. In those versions, Orestes is smuggled out of the palace and brought to the land of focus where he lives for years. Because that's the amount of time that passes after the death of Agamemnon and before any further drama begins. Years. Years of Electra being the only child, or rather, now a young woman, left behind in the palace. Her sister sacrificed, her father murdered, and her brother hidden away in another land to protect his own life. In those years, after their father is murdered by their mother and her new lover, now the new king of Argos, Electra grows up. She becomes a woman, and in becoming a woman and the princess of Argos, she's in high demand. You know property being property, and so all the men around are after her. They want to marry the fuck out of her, to get both a hot wife and the power that comes with being married to the princess. Of course, we're not told how Electra feels about this, but it doesn't matter anyway, because Aegisthus isn't having it. Clytemnestra might have been in charge when they plotted to kill her husband, and she might have been the main person holding the dagger that plunged into Agamemnon's chest repeatedly. But once he's dead... It's Aegisthus who takes charge. This is what he's wanted the entire time. He was once king of Argos, and he wanted it back. And finally, he has it. Clytemnestra, I like to believe, is just so caught up in her anger and her grief over Iphigenia that she becomes a bit of a robot, just letting Aegisthus do whatever the fuck he wants. To an extent. We're told in Euripides' telling of the story that Aegisthus did want to take this one step further— He had every intention of killing Electra. But that one moment is where Clytemnestra puts her foot down. He can punish Electra endlessly, and he can keep her from having any sort of life, but he can't kill her. That would be going too far. So Aegisthus does everything but. He means to secure his authority in whatever means possible outside of murder. This includes preventing Electra from truly growing up, or going out on her own in any way. Aegisthus doesn't let any of the men of Argos pursue her, he doesn't let her leave the palace, even for a moment, and so Electra waits, her life on hold. What she's been left with in Argos doesn't mean anything anymore anyway, though, but the return of Orestes, that could mean everything. Electra, too, hated her father for what he did to Iphigenia, but her mother crossed a line when she murdered him in revenge. And so this is what Electra thinks about all this time. What she and Orestes could do to their mother and Aegisthus, if only Orestes would return home to Argos. Time continues on, though, and Aegisthus reaches a point where he knows he can't just keep Electra locked up in the palace any longer. He's in constant fear of her marrying some nobleman and having a child that will, once again, remove him from the throne he's finally gotten back. So he comes up with a more permanent solution to the problem of Electra. Agisthus marries her off to a poor farmer. And this is where Euripides' play, Electra, begins. The farmer is of noble lineage, but his family line has fallen very far, and now he's poor and no longer feels he has any nobility left in him. He's gifted with Electra. Property is property, you know. But this is Euripides, and Euripides thought women were actual people. Can you believe it? I love Euripides. You see... This farmer has given Electra as his wife, and you know what he tells us in the first pages of this play? Electra was a virgin when he married her, and she's a virgin now. He doesn't feel he has any right to force her. He references this as due to her nobility, but I'm just going to go ahead and call him a decent guy anyway. Choosing not to rape is quite the rare feat in ancient Greek mythology. The farmer husband of Electra tells us that any man who calls him a fool for not raping her is measuring self-control by, quote, his own flawed standards, and that he is the real fool. Anyway, I love Euripides. And then we meet Electra, who is a queen and a badass. She's working her ass off, carrying water to the farm, and when her farmer husband, who doesn't have a name in the play, by the way, I'm not just not saying it. He tells her to take a break, that she does enough, and that she is a princess, after all. But she tells him that she wants to do her part, that he's such a good friend, and such a comfort in her bullshit life, that she wants to do everything she can to help out at the farm. Honestly, they have a lovely relationship. It's just warm and friendly and clearly based in mutual respect. Anyway, it's rare as fuck, and I love it. But we only hear of so much normalcy in this couple's lives, because in this moment, two strangers appear. By the house.
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway.
3: Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Orestes and his friend Pylades, who has traveled with him from Focus, are nearby. Before they meet Electra and her husband, though, Orestes lays out why he's there. And if you thought that Clytemnestra would not be the villain here because I'm me and she's a woman, well, you thought wrong. Clytemnestra might have had some righteous fury in her reasoning for killing her husband, but her children do not take her side in this. They may have been angry with their father, but they're smart enough to know the solution was not to kill him. Sadly, as Orestes lays out here, he is not smart enough to know that the answer to murder shouldn't be, well, murder. He explains to Pylades, and in doing so, the audience, that he's arrived back in Argos to plot the murder of his murderous mother and her murderous lover, and new husband, Aegisthus. Orestes wants Electra's help, and he's in these parts to seek her out to convince her of his plan. Orestes sees Electra, too, but he doesn't recognize her. He believes her to be a servant, and so he hides, waiting to decide whether he'll ask her about his own sister. Lucky for Orestes, Electra begins a bit of a soliloquy, though he is there to hear it, explaining how she is the daughter of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, and sister of Orestes. So, you know, he finds out the truth pretty quickly. Before Orestes speaks with his sister, though, we also learn that there is to be a festival in honor of Hera, and all the women of the city are invited. Electra laments this, though her situation and her appearance are not something she wants advertised to the people of the city. Finally, Orestes announces himself, scaring the living shit out of Electra, who is absolutely sure this rando guy hiding behind a bush with a sword right by her house is definitely there to kill her. But he convinces her otherwise, not telling her that he's her brother, but that he knows her brother, and he's there to check in on her on behalf of Orestes. Electra is thrilled. She hasn't heard from him since he was smuggled off to Focus and had no idea whether he was alive or dead. She tells Orestes, who's not telling her that he's Orestes, all about her life. About her husband, the farmer, who's just a farmer, but thankfully is a super nice guy who hasn't even tried to rape her once. Honestly, the way they talk about how weird it is that he hasn't tried to rape her is one of the most troubling things. But they're both very glad he hasn't, so that's nice. And Electra straight up tells Orestes that her husband, quote, "...knows better than to take advantage of a woman." Have I mentioned I love Euripides? The siblings talk, though Electra still doesn't know she's speaking with her long-lost brother. They speak about what's happened since, how Clytemnestra has all but abandoned her children in favor of her new lover, Aegisthus. How they've even had their own children together, making Electra and Orestes even more obsolete than they already were after the death of Agamemnon. Before long, Orestes gets to the point. He asks Electra, Hypothetically, if your brother Orestes were to return to Argos, wanting to kill your mother and Aegisthus for what they did to your father, how would you feel? Electra tells him she is absolutely down for that idea. And Orestes continues, If that were to occur, would you be interested in helping Orestes kill your mother? You're damn right, Electra tells him. She'll be happy even if she loses her own life, provided she gets to slit her own mother's throat. Eventually, Electra's farmer husband arrives back at the house and invites the and Pylades in, which causes Electra to be a bit of a bitch, honestly. She points out how unimpressive their home is and aren't these men too good to be here? Anyway, for all she notes about the respectfulness of her husband and not being a rapist, she treats them like garbage in this moment. Finally, she just sends him off to go find the man who smuggled Orestes out of Argos to begin with, to come meet these men and learn himself that Orestes has survived after all this time. The old man arrives, the one who smuggled Orestes from the palace into focus those many years ago. He speaks with Electra outside the house. Orestes pretending to be somebody who knows Orestes, and Pylades are both inside. The old man has been to see Agamemnon's tomb, and has seen what someone left behind. Someone's been there recently, and they both know that no one of Argos would dare go there, not when the man who killed the king sits in his throne. The old man has seen a sheep sacrificed outside the tomb, and a lock of hair left behind by whoever was there, and a footprint, so much evidence that he proposes was left behind by Orestes himself. Electra, though, is a Debbie Downer and has so many reasons not to believe what this old man thinks he's seen. I won't go into the details, but there's a lot of debate about comparing the hair of siblings and the footprints and maybe clothes Electra might have made for Orestes those many years ago. I'll admit I side with Electra on the logic of those things, but she's still being a bit stubborn in not willing to believe that her brother could possibly have been the one who left those things behind. Before long, Orestes... And Pylades make their way outside the house to speak with Electra and the old man, who, again, doesn't have a name, I'm not just ignoring it. "'Who is this man?' Orestes asks Electra, who tells him that, of course, this is the man who saved Orestes all those years ago. "'Why is he looking at me that way?' Orestes, who's pretending not to be Orestes, asks Electra. "'I was wondering the same thing,' she replies." Why is he walking around me in a circle, looking incredibly curious? Orestes, who's pretending not to be Orestes, asks Electra. But before she can respond, the old man exclaims that, obviously, this is Orestes. Give your brother a big hug, he tells Electra. And why Orestes would vocalize the questioning look this man is giving him when he knows full well that he is indeed Orestes is beyond me. Like, at this point, who do you think you're fooling, dude? In any event, the ruse is up. Electra is reunited with her brother, and the pair hug mercilessly. (laughs) Orestes is back! Now that the cat's out of the bag, he quickly begins to plot how he'll kill both Aegisthus and his own mother, Clytemnestra. Honestly, any reason to say the name Clytemnestra. Clytemnestra. Orestes and the old man discuss how he might go about it. The old man tells Orestes that he's seen a geese this on his way just to meet them today, that he was preparing to sacrifice an ox with only slave servants nearby. He tells Orestes that this is perfect. Slaves will immediately turn to Orestes' side as soon as it's clear their master is no longer their master. What a weird and gross way to interact with human beings. But I digress. The logistics are planned between Orestes and his new consultant in the matter, this old man. But when the murder of Clytemnestra is put on the table, finally, Electra speaks up. She wants to kill their mother. But how will she manage it? Orestes asks his sister. You, she calls to the old man, you will go to her and tell her I've just had a child, a boy, and that I wish to see her after I've recovered from the childbirth. And then what? Orestes asks. Then she dies, Electra says bluntly. It's not a short distance from here to Hades' underworld. Have I mentioned I love Euripides? And so, the plan is planned. Everyone knows where they're to go and what's to go down. Orestes and Pylades, with the help of the old man, will locate Agisthus where he's mostly alone, only with servants who aren't particularly loyal to him, save for being required to be. They'll find him there, and they'll finish him. Electra, meanwhile, will wait for her mother to visit, believing she's just given birth to a boy. She finishes off their planning by saying that she'll be there, sword in hand. Never will she give in to their enemies and never will she let herself be walked over because she is a badass. With everything planned, Orestes, Pylades, and the old man leave Electra. They're headed to fulfill their ends. She remains behind to wait for news. Before long, the chorus, who's been with her all along, a group of Greek women on her side, call out to where she is inside of the house, saying they hear shouts as if someone far off is dying. Electra. Jaded by her years of disappointment, is it first sure that Orestes has failed, and that it's her beloved brother who's dying. But the chorus convinces her not to jump to conclusions, to wait to hear the truth. She does, and moments later, a messenger rushes in to tell her that Orestes has succeeded. Aegisthus has been killed. Well, friends, we're deep into one of the darker and more famous stories from the ancient people we love so dearly. Most of today's episode comes from Euripides' Electra. My version is translated by John Davy. The beginning of the episode is from a collection of sources I'll name in a moment, but first I have to tell you more about Euripides. I know I've mentioned my love for him countless times, but today's episode is a great example of why. Both Aeschylus and Sophocles wrote about this portion of the story of the children of Agamemnon and how they handle his murder, but neither of those stories feature Electra as a true lead character. She's just there, being a woman. But in Euripides, his play is about Electra. I wrote a good half of this episode based on other sources one day because I'd realized that somehow I didn't have a copy of Euripides' Electra. I had Aeschylus's Libation Bears, and I have Sophocles' Electra, but neither were the version I wanted to tell. Or, I should say, the version that's meant to be told in this particular podcast. Euripides focused on women in an entirely different way from the other Tragedians, and where I can choose to use his version, I will. So I delayed finishing the outline for the episode and went downtown first thing to scour three different bookstores in order to find this version of Electra. Love you, Euripides. I wish we could have been friends. Another of the sources for this episode are my often-used The Greek Myths by Robin Waterfield. However, I've just noticed that while the book only includes that author on the cover and the spine, there's one page on the inside that has it written by Robin Waterfield and Catherine Waterfield. I wish I'd noticed this earlier and given credit, but there's the nature of men versus women in this world. The references to a female author on the book aren't nearly as obvious as the references to the male author. Anyway, it's a fine source most of the time, but it's also the source that often has troubling language with regards to the female characters, so it's infinitely imperfect as it is. Of course, I also refer to Edith Hamilton's mythology, Timeless Tales of Gods and Heroes, and, if only vaguely, Sophocles' Electra, translated by David Rayburn. I also want to tell you about a book that came out in the last few years that retells this story beautifully. It's called House of Names by Colm Toibin, and let me tell you, this is not an ad. It's just one book lover to another. You might know Colm Toibin as the author of Brooklyn, amongst countless others, but this is one of his most recent, and it's quite different from his usual style. It retells the story of the sacrifice of Iphigenia, as well as the intervening years between that event and Agamemnon's return home and his murder by Clytemnestra. It focuses on the events after as well, those we've delved into in this episode and that we'll continue to cover next episode. It does this by telling parts of the story in the point of view of Clytemnestra, Electra, and Orestes, which makes for a very intriguing telling. I personally loved it and couldn't recommend it more as a novelization of this story. Finally, and this is just a fun anecdote, I used to work for Penguin Random House Canada, which published that book in Canada under its McClellan stewart imprint, and it came through my department in my last month or two of working there, and I nearly lost it in excitement. Thankfully, a friend there was eager to send me a copy when it came out. Paying it forward here, so please pick up a copy, especially if you live in Canada, because you'll get an m and copy and help my old friends at Penguin Random House Canada. And this leads me to... I think I'm going to plan a bonus episode sometime in the near future where I talk about some of the books I love that are related to mythology. I need to read a few more on my list before we go into detail, but due to popular demand, that's definitely in the works. Thank you all for listening. You're wonderful. Please go on over to iTunes and give me a five-star review, maybe offset some of those dinks who don't like the feminism and can't be bothered to just find literally any other mythology podcast. But I digress. You're all the best, and the reviews you give me fuel my soul. I'm Liv, and I absolutely love this shit, especially this particular shit we're covering right now. Oh, this shit!
0: When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes. Burned, you could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules, and yet Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured,
3: they said, My
1: head should be cut off,
0: the joy they brought to the nation.
2: You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you.
0: I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app,
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast.